turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. It's Christmas and we're celebrating the incarnation when the eternal Son of God became a, became a man to save the world. We will eventually be back in the same passage that we've looked at over the last few weeks in Luke chapter 1, uh, where the angel Gabriel appeared in Nazareth and announces to Mary that uh, she's going to have a baby. And His name is Jesus. There are a number of things that we learn in that passage. Among other things, we've talked about the virgin birth. We've talked about the fact that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. Uh, We've talked about the fact that the incarnation is all about grace. We saw that last week. Today I want to focus on another aspect of Gabriel's announcement, particularly in verses 32 and 33, in regard to Jesus and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is one of my favorite themes in all of the scriptures, and it's one that really jumps off the page in Gabriel's announcement to Mary, uh, but it especially jumps off the page if we understand more of the big picture context of that announcement. So what I want to do is look at a number of passages leading up to that announcement, uh, and then we'll look at a couple that follow, sort of a survey scan of God's kingdom, uh, that theme in the scriptures. We're really just scratching the surface, uh, but hopefully I can point you to some passages that you can further meditate on if you like. We're going to be flipping a lot, so stay on your toes. Um, We've looked at this passage before in here in 2 Samuel 7 a few times over the last few years because if we're going to understand anything about God's kingdom, we really need to start here, or uh, this is one of the main places we need to go because... The promises about Jesus in Luke 1 have their roots in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, it was about a thousand years before Jesus. David has just become the king of Israel. Who was the first king? Just making sure you're on your toes. Saul. David was Saul's successor. And um, in this passage, David has just become king, and God is establishing a covenant with David a covenant that not only has significance for David's time, but for all time. So follow as I read 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. This is the Word of God. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So a few things to notice. Verse 12, uh, God promises David that he will have an offspring. God promises that he will establish this offspring's kingdom. Verse 13, God says he will establish his throne forever. And uh, verse 14, not only will this offspring be a son of David, but he will also be a son of God. It says, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. So God made this covenant with David around 1000 B.C., uh, and these covenant promises have a partial fulfillment in the line of kings that descended from David, starting with Solomon, his son, on down. Um, 
God told David that his son would build his house. That's at least in part referring to uh, Solomon, who built the temple. David was not able to build the temple. He could organize it and get the plans ready and all that. But Solomon, his son, is the one who built the temple. And then God said that though his son would sin, he would not cast him off like he did Saul. Uh, Solomon was a sinner, and so those in the Davidic line of kings after him, but God was faithful to this covenant uh, that he made. So, in response to this, David had a descendant on the throne for some 400 years, beginning with his reign, uh, which is pretty remarkable in and of itself. But then Babylon conquered Judah in about 600 B.C., and... uh, The people of Israel and Judah had now been conquered, and the kings were no more. So the nation of Israel is in shambles, and the people are back in captivity. They get out of captivity, you know, between uh, 5 and 400 B.C., uh, but they didn't return to, and they, they get resettled during that time, but they didn't return to the dominant political force that they were before. Even in their native land, they became nothing more than sort of a... uh, irrelevant little subculture in the shadow of the great Rome and that's kind of our context as we get to the New New Testament. So there was a king on the throne for some 400 years but then there are these hundreds of years with no king which begs the question. In his covenant with uh, David God promised a kingdom that would not end. So was God breaking his covenant promises? Were they, was he, you know, ah, uh, I mean, I meant that at first, but now, you know, they've really gotten bad, and so no more. No, they had a partial fulfillment in David's immediate descendants who reigned on the throne for those few hundred years, but they were looking ahead to the final fulfillment of, in the last David, the son of David, who would also be the son of God, whose throne God would establish forever. So even in the decline of Israel, these covenant promises were clung to as the future hope for God's people. Uh, The Messiah would come, an even greater David than than even the great King David, the greatest king that Israel ever knew, and he would rule on the throne forever. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7. Isaiah prophesied around uh, 700 B.C. Israel's in decline. It wouldn't be long before there is no king on the throne. Uh, The people of Israel are heading into their darkest days since Egypt. And yet against this backdrop of darkness, Isaiah talks about a day of great light when that promised offspring of David uh, would come and fulfill God's covenant with David. Isaiah 9, look at verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So a few things to notice. Verse 6, we see again this promised son. Uh, Again, verse 6, government on his shoulder. He's a ruler. He's a king. 
Uh, verse 7, a king on the throne of David. It's the same king that, that God promised to David those 300 years prior. Um, so 300 years ago, God made these promises. Israel's now falling apart, but Isaiah's looking ahead to the day when God's covenant promises would be fulfilled. Also notice in verse 7, it says that uh, his governing influence would increase without end. It says uh, of the increase of his government and of peace there would be no end. And it says that that will happen from the time that he gets here and forevermore, from this time forth forever. Now turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. So just after 1000 B.C., the nation of Israel split into two. You've got Israel and Judah. Uh, Israel was conquered by the Assyrians about 700 B.C., around the time that Isaiah prophesied. Judah was conquered by Babylon just after 600 B.C. That's a little over 100 years later. Daniel prophesied during that time uh, the, the captivity in Babylon, where the kings are now officially no more. Israel, Judah, no more kings. And yet we find that these covenant promises that were made to David still stand. So in Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, which is the most powerful kingdom in the world at the time. He's had a troubling dream. It's this great image. It's got a head of gold. It's got a chest and arms made of silver. Uh, It's got a middle and thighs made of bronze. It's got legs of iron, feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And in the dream, there's this stone that was cut out, not by a human hand, it was just cut out. And it comes and it strikes this great image that Nebuchadnezzar is seeing, and it crushes it. It breaks it into pieces. And then the, the pieces become like tumbleweed, like chaff, and they just blow away in the wind and they can't be found, never could be found again. Uh, But that stone that struck the image, that stone stays, and it becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. It's a troubling dream, bad dream. Well, Daniel was there as a servant in Babylon, one of the Hebrews that was taken in the captivity to Babylon, and he was a servant to the king. Long story short, God revealed Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel uh, and what it meant, and so Daniel goes to the king, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's so mad nobody can interpret it. He's about ready to kill everybody, including Daniel. He's like, wait a second, you know, God will tell me. And uh, so God does tell him. And Daniel says this. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, O great king, you are the head of gold. And then there's another great kingdom that's going to come, and that's the silver. And then there's this other great kingdom after that, and that's the bronze. And then this other great kingdom, that's the iron. And it's the strongest of all the kingdoms because, you know, iron breaks everything. And that stone, that stone is God's kingdom. So let's, with that in mind, pick up in Daniel 2, 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Your kingdom is great, O Nebuchadnezzar. There will be other great kingdoms too. 
And by the way, uh, that fourth kingdom, the strongest one, the one of iron, it, many think that that's referring to Rome, which was the greatest kingdom in the history of the world at its time. Uh, but Daniel says, in that day, in the days of these kings, in Rome's day, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It will break in pieces all these other kingdoms. It will bring them to an end, and it alone shall endure forever. God sets up His kingdom, and His kingdom will never be destroyed. All other kingdoms will fall, but God's kingdom is going to be the last kingdom standing. Alright, turn to Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7. Now, there's a lot of imagery in here that I don't really know what it means, but uh, lots of horns and beasts and such. Josh knows, so you can just talk to him after class. But, uh, it's crystal clear. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. But, uh, but you know, verses 13 and 14 are pretty clear, uh, more so in 14. But I'm going to read Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him before God. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Sounds familiar. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Son of man, he's ruler of a kingdom. His governing influence reaches the ends of the earth. All peoples, nations, languages will serve him. His is an everlasting, indestructible kingdom. The glory days of Israel are long gone, but the covenant with David is not gone. Even when there is no king on the throne in Israel, the hope of the Davidic covenant still stands. God will send His king and establish His kingdom, and His kingdom will never be destroyed. Now turn to Luke 1. This was another 500 plus years after Daniel. Rome had taken over the world. The Jews, again, were nothing but an insignificant subculture, even in their homeland. God had been silent with His people for some 400 years. No prophets, no nothing. And the angel Gabriel appeared to a no-name girl in a nothing town called Nazareth, and he had a message from the Lord. And this is what he said. In Luke chapter 1, 26 through 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Sounds familiar. Verse 32, he'll be called the Son of the Most High or the Son of God. Verse 33, the heir of David's throne. Also in verse 33, he's the last David. He will be reigning on David's throne forever. His is the kingdom 
that will never end. Jesus is the promised offspring of God's covenant with David. He's the son of David, son of God. He's the last David, the promised king whose throne will be established forever. His governing influence will increase forever until it reaches the ends of the earth, the stone that fills the whole earth, as in Daniel chapter 2. All peoples, nations, languages will serve Him, as it says in Daniel chapter 7. The King has come, His throne has been established, and He will reign forever. All other kingdoms will fall, but God's King and His kingdom will never be destroyed. Now, just so you know that we're on the right track, um, I want to show you a couple passages from Jesus' life and ministry talking about the kingdom. And I think we'll find the theme just continues. Turn to Matthew 4. Matthew chapter 4. So, uh, Gabriel makes this announcement that Jesus is the long-awaited king of God's kingdom, and then Jesus lives in relative obscurity for about 30 years, a carpenter's son in Nazareth. You know, I was thinking about that, quick aside, uh, you may feel like God is taking a long time to do some things in your life, but honestly, that's the way He's always worked, and uh, He made a covenant with David, He confirmed that covenant over many years through very difficult circumstances. Then he was silent for a few hundred years. And then he announced this baby was the fulfillment of that covenant thousand years later. Then 30 more years in relative obscurity, not to hear from him. And then even then, the kingdom's only just getting started. The point is, God's time may not be our time, but it's worth the wait. And so my encouragement in light of that would be to wait on the Lord. All right, in Matthew 4, we get the first mention of Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 17. What is the first thing Jesus was saying in His ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is here. He starts His ministry by talking about the kingdom. Then if you turn to Matthew 5-7, through that's the Sermon on the Mount. He starts the sermon by talking about the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He teaches us to pray in the middle of that sermon. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. You know, kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Kingdom's always on his mind. The kingdom is at hand. The gospel of the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. And one thing that we learn about the fact that he teaches us to pray that the kingdom would come is that though the kingdom came and was set up when Jesus came to earth, uh, the kingdom is still coming and still being established and only will be fully and finally established when Jesus returns. Um, keep turning to Matthew 13. More about the kingdom in Matthew 13. What's that? Oh, I thought you said something. Hearing things. Uh, first look at verse 36. And the few verses following, and it'll help us understand some previous verses. Uh, It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. 
All right, look back at uh, verses 31 and 32. I just want you to see there that Jesus is the man, the sons of the kingdom, the seed, the field is the world. Okay? Keep that in mind as we read 31 and 32. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Who's the seed? Sons of the kingdom. Who's the man? Jesus. What's the field? The world. Okay. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus plants his followers in the world. Starts out real small, like the smallest of all seeds, mustard seed, grows to a big tree. Sounds like Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Or like Daniel 2, the stone that grew to a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Look at uh, verse 33, Matthew 13, 33. More of the same. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Again, the kingdom starts out small in the world like a little leaven that's hidden in a big lump of flour, but you cook it. The whole loaf gets leavened over time. The kingdom expands to fill the whole entire world. As it says in Daniel 7, all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. Now, we're not to the end yet. The Lord is not done establishing His kingdom. There are still unreached people. But we've come a long way from a few followers in the Middle East. How many millions of followers have there been since then? And not just in the Middle East. Kingdom starts out small, started in a particular area. It has spread to reach many parts of the world. It will continue to spread uh, into the whole world. Jesus is the King of God's everlasting, ever-expanding kingdom. His governing influence has been promised to reach all peoples, nations, and languages. All other kingdoms will rise and fall, but God's kingdom will never be destroyed. Look, that's a lot. I know you might feel sick at your stomach from jumping around so much, but I just want to give you a survey scan of this topic of God's kingdom, kind of the 30,000-foot view. You can go back and reference some of these passages if you like. I have a couple applications, but uh, any thoughts or questions at this point about that? You can hold on to them for a minute. Um, This is such a major theme in all the Scriptures. It could apply in so many ways that I couldn't possibly do justice in making application for you. Um, I'd love to hear some of your applications as you think about kingdom and how that influences your life. But uh, one preliminary comment, and then I'll make a couple applications from my life. The comment is this. The kingdom of God does not advance like the other kingdoms of this world. You know, we hear, here's this kingdom that's going to crush all these other kingdoms. But Jesus said when he was before Pilate, he's being sentenced to death. And, you know, are you a king? Are you a king? Are you a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, there would be a legion of angels here, and this whole conflict would not be a conflict. It would be over. But that's not how God's kingdom advances. It advances by the application of God's grace in the transformation of hearts, uh, not by military might, 
but by the power of the gospel. So we're going to talk more about kingdom advance next week. Um, but as far as application, I can at least tell you two areas of my life where I found myself thinking about the kingdom a lot recently. The first has to do with ISIS. Um, I'll just be honest with you, that stuff scares me. Maybe it doesn't scare you, it scares me. That's a big animal, and it's looking to devour its prey. And uh, a lot of times it disguises itself, and you don't know that it's that animal that's looking to devour its prey. My tendency is to gravitate toward thoughts of the kingdom of America, and honestly, to hope in the kingdom of America when I'm struggling with those fears. You know, military might. Now, don't get me wrong. I hope somebody does something about that. I really do. I mean, I think we got a great military, and I hope they, you know, do something about it. But one thing that I know as I read this and think about it in the span of all history, the kingdom of the United States of America will not stand forever. The great Rome, the greatest uh, culture, the greatest kingdom in the history of the world at its time, Where is it now? It's like those pieces that were broken and turned into tumbleweed and blew away, nowhere to be found. I'm a servant of the King who triumphs in the end. And you know, they may be able to stamp me out. They may be able to kill lots of us. And they're already doing that. But they cannot and they will not stamp out the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Their kingdom will fall. His kingdom will never end. You know, on top of that, Jesus loves to advance His kingdom on the hearts of His enemies. Paul, greatest missionary in the history of the church, was an enemy persecutor of the church. Heck, we were all enemies of God in our sin. And so, when I think about ISIS in light of that, it leads me not only to hope and pray for ISIS's execution, which I do hope and pray for, but it also leads me to pray for their salvation. Maybe execution by salvation. I want them to die all right, but I want them to die as I have died and now truly live. All right, the second bit of application uh, in regard to thoughts of the kingdom is in this current refugee crisis. You know, everybody's talking about it and all that. Now, there are many ways to think about it, it's a complex conversation. Uh, I'm not in a position to make substantial decisions in regard to those things. But the thing that I have to keep reminding myself as I think through it is my allegiance is to the kingdom of God. So I have to ask myself, is there a kingdom way to think about this? Is there a way that God has called me to respond, even if it might grate against the way that the rest of the world is responding and acting? I think about love the sojourner, love your neighbor, But some of them might want to kill us. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. God forgive them, they know not what they're doing. As Stephen prayed when they were stoning him to death. Again, I'm not saying that there's no place for wisdom in this issue. We see in the Bible that a city without walls is a bad thing. Uh, I hope there's great wisdom given to those that make these decisions in in our nation. But as far as I am concerned... First and foremost, I am a Christian. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And I have to ask myself if there are kingdom principles that should guide my thinking. 
there's a kingdom way to think about everything from business to marriage to family to politics to finances to friends to enemies you name it my job is to return to the scriptures again and again and again and to find out how the lord would have me think about this issue in a kingdom way and and how he would have me act all right questions or comments i'd love to hear more things that you think about in regard to the kingdom One small thing that jumped out at me was just the numbers that you were saying. You know, it was 400 years later, 600 years after that, 1,000 years after that. And that kind of kingdom perspective of, you know, we are Americans born in America. And, you know, we live in this great, amazing um, country at this period of history in the world, and I started going, yeah, I mean, you know, because we've been waiting for a thousand, no, 200? Like, really? It's only been, like, our country's only been here for, you know, 200-something years. Mm -hmm. And, like, when you think about that in the perspective of God's timeline in history, um, you know, we are a a pretty small um, fraction um, in that, and and it is good, you know, because everybody is talking about, you know, we're falling apart and everything, and to to take that, you know, um, higher level perspective and remember that, excuse me, that God is sovereign and he is working out a plan that, um, you know, in the micro of our lives and our timing, um, in the macro of of his purposes and and his timing. And, you know, we get tunnel vision. We think about the now a lot. The now is, you know happen we're called to we're not don't worry about tomorrow you know today we got stuff to worry about we got stuff to do and yet if we're going to build a rock solid hope in christ it's going to have to span a whole lot bigger than even our lifetime and just i mean god's entire plan of redemptive history because the reality you know we sing that song i'm thinking of when we've been there ten thousand years bright shining as the sun well we can't really comprehend that but, you know, there will be a day when we look back at this experiment called America and it will be a chapter, maybe chapter four, behind some of the other great world powers like Rome and these guys. And yet, the kingdom of God still stands and will stand forever. And so it just, we kind of just got to get our bearings. And uh, it's, it's not normal to think that way, but extremely helpful. Anyone else? Chris, you got any thoughts on uh, our roles as believers or our position in the bringing power of the kingdom? I mean, other than just understanding what it is from a helicopter view. Yeah. um, Ambassador is the king. I mean, he's given his message to his ambassadors and, uh, you know, called us to go and reach those places that are the left unreached and uh, those people who are left, you know, apart from him. I mean, so God is sovereign in bringing it about. We can be certain that it's going to happen, and yet we are responsible in the bringing about. I think first and foremost, we have to think about the proclamation of the gospel. You know, 
I was reading a book recently, a guy named Russell Moore, a book called Onward, and he's talking about in all these changing times in our country, how do we move forward? And he made an interesting point just about, you know, there was a day not too long ago when Christians identified as, you know, in this kind of political movement, the moral majority, and, and we're kind of trying to blend these Christian America thing together. And he's saying, you know, that day's gone, and we're not really that way. But maybe we're not a moral majority, but we certainly are a prophetic minority. Uh, we may be a minority, but that's such as the church always been. That's what's going on in Turkey. That's what was going on in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. And yet, God's people speak about Him, and He does amazing things. And so, that's what I would say first and foremost. What about you? You got any thoughts? Uh, I don't disagree with you. That's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's... Uh, I probably live most of my Christian life not uh, understanding my, you know, that I've had an active role to play in God's bringing about His kingdom. Uh, maybe understanding that He's going to win, but not understanding that He's going to use His people to do it. Um, yeah. And so really kind of like a dead fish Christian, I guess. Yeah. You don't understand how, it, how he's using us as his tools. No, that's good. And, um, you know, we talk about, I mean, this global kingdom, and yet it's really helpful to bring it back down into my life. And pray our Father in Heaven, you know, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. I mean, when we pray that, we can pray that for everywhere, and we can, we also pray that for here. We pray that for right now in this relationship that I'm in at work. We pray that for this grieving, hurting family. We pray that for give our church clarity on how we can better uh, participate with you in what you're doing in our city, in our country, across the globe, but just owning this it's both. God is sovereign. He's going to bring about His ends. He's going to advance His kingdom in His time. And yet, in our time, we are responsible. We're His um, kingdom ambassadors. Anyone else? I know um, for me sometimes, and, and for all of us, we just slip into sin so easily. And normally that looks like self Preoccupation, and so sometimes uh, when our hearts are chaotic or we're frustrated, it's good to stop and think, "Whose kingdom am I building right now?" Mm-hmm. Because so often we build, we want to build our kingdom, and right. our, you know, our fame, our glory, our stuff, our name, whatever mm-hmm. that, our comfort, whatever that looks like. And so sometimes it's, like I said, helpful just to kind of take a step back and say, "Okay, whose kingdom am I really building right now with right. this action? Whose am I supposed to be?" That's a great point. Very good. All right, a couple more minutes if you have another thought. Very good. What's that? Yeah, just Aaron, if you have a question. Yeah, all right, all right. Well, if you missed last week, Aaron... Dropped a bomb, and we talked about hell for about 20 minutes. (laughs) All right, y'all have a good day. Merry Christmas.